In the 1970s, Paul Hogan took on the Marlboro Man with his uh, Winfield cigarette ads and uh, they became an indelible part of our culture and our social history. But Australia has an equally powerful history of anti-tobacco advertising. There's been, well, there were some very funny ads and some absolutely devastatingly confronting ones. Now, these campaigns are some of the reasons we now have one of the lowest rates of smoking in the world. An exhibition of the ads has just opened at ACME in Melbourne, formerly known as the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. And uh, one of the content organisers is Thomas Keogh, historian and manager of the Heritage Programme at the Cancer Council of Victoria. Although when I knew it and worked with it, it was the Anti-Cancer Council. Thomas, before we uh, pat ourselves on the back too much, Australia started behind the rest of the world on smoking regulations and education, didn't we? Yes, we did. So if we're starting the story in the late 60s, 1968, nine, somewhere like that, we had far fewer regulations than comparable countries like the United States and the UK and Denmark. Um, and we also permitted uh, tobacco advertising on television and radio, which those countries by that point had banned. So we were starting behind the eight ball a little bit in the late 60s. There was evidence from overseas that advertising increased uptake among young people pitching to their notions of, well, transition to adulthood, uh, Thomas. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So what was clear from just a number of studies throughout the 60s, particularly in the UK, was that uh, smoking advertising, even if it was geared towards or notionally pitched at adults, portrayed smoking as cool, as uh, sophisticated, as something that marked you as a fully grown, actualized adult human, um, and so therefore appealed to youth and teenagers in particular. I, so rem I remember doing an anti-smoking ad for This Day Tonight in its infancy, and uh, we used the argument about people's, you know, sucking pencils, even nipples, as as a sort of a as, a as a calming influence, and I remember we had the Marlboro man sitting on a distant hillside, and we zoomed in to discover that he was sucking his thumb, and up on the screen came the words "smoking is for suckers." It wasn't one of, <laughs> wasn't one of yours, but uh, it, it wasn't a, a bad effort. Now a, a hero appears, and it's not the Marlboro man; it's Nigel Gray, an old yes. mate and a huge talent. Yes, Nigel Gray um, kind of looms over everything that we do at Cancer Council today. He transformed what was a small cancer charity in 1968 into what one writer has called a cancer control enterprise by the time he finished in 1995. And so uh, a big part of that transformation was tobacco control and a big part of the tobacco control story was anti-tobacco advertising. So yes, Nigel Gray is the real hero in this story, definitely. And he was only, well, he was only 40, wasn't he, when he took it on? Absolutely. He was 40 years old in 1968 when he was appointed. Um, he had been, he'd had a stellar career up to that point. I mean, he'd worked 
overseas in Cleveland and um, he'd been assistant director of the Royal Children's Hospital. And so he'd come to uh, Cancer Council with this kind of unique suite of skills. He was a, a medically trained doctor, he was a researcher and also a um, fantastic administrator. And so I think he brought something really unique. Well, what, what, what I liked about him was his theatrical gifts. Not surprising given that his dad managed the uh, the Melbourne Comedy Theatre for J.C. Williamson's. <laughs> he did, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he did. So I think uh, that's part of this story actually is that Nigel um, was able to, as the mythos goes, I'm not entirely sure if this is absolutely correct, but as the mythos goes, he was able to get an in with Warren Mitchell and Miriam Carlin, who feature in the earliest ads, through connections that his father made. Well, you're now cueing me to uh, play some bits and pieces to the beloved listener. Let's hear one of the early ads. This is Miriam Carlin, who was very big at the time, Mm -hmm. an actor visiting from the UK, and she does this pro bono. She's looking very glamorous, walking down the steps of a mansion, elegantly waving a cigarette. Hello. I owe everything I have to cigarettes. My cough, stained fingers, yellow teeth, (laughs) and incurable lung cancer. (laughs) I'm sorry. Isn't that dazzling? Okay. So it was Miriam plus the legendary Warren Mitchell, an old friend of the program, uh, and also Fred Parslow, the Australian actor, got involved. Here's Warren, as his then very famous alter ego, Elf Garnet. He's in front of the telly, slamming down a book and being seduced by a TV ad and, of course, lighting a cigarette. Blooming doctors. No one tells me what I smoke. Have a puff of mind. Smooth, satisfying, mild, manly, soothing and stimulating. Of course, uh, our star, Nigel Gray, went on to, to bigger things, not better, but certainly bigger, because he, uh, he went on to head up the WHO's tobacco control program. He did, uh, and also uh, the UICC, which is the Union for International Cancer Control's Tobacco Control Program as well. Um, and he that was just one of the many things he did on the international stage in public health. In fact, he uh, led a note, quite a bit of research. and um, But I think tobacco control is certainly his most famous contribution and the one that people know him best for. I, I remember his other tactic which was to increase the price of cigarettes, to make them more mm-hmm. and more and more expensive, to try to use that as a dynamic to, to reduce smoking levels. Now, he remained good pals with Warren Mitchell, and here's Warren Mitchell being himself in a different style of head. I smoke about 20 fags a day, and I wish I didn't. Perhaps I'd stand a better chance of persuading my kids not to smoke. I'd probably live a bit longer too. I quite enjoy life. You know, there's no doubt that cigarette smoking is dangerous. And I only hope I can get the willpower to give it up. I hope you can too. Now, the early satirical ads were actually, of course, satirising the tobacco ads, and uh, that caused a bit of problems, I understand. Well, that's right. So the the 
aim of that campaign in 1971 was to to create a bit of a public and media storm to convince the federal government at that time to ban tobacco advertising on television. So it accompanied an advocacy campaign directly to government and it, but the ads themselves were meant to elicit a hostile response from television channels, which they dutifully supplied by refusing to air the ads when they initially were presented with them. And so they, that was then shopped to the press by Nigel, who, <laughs> <laughs> who cleverly, because there's one ad with uh, Sir McFarlane Burnett, the first Australian Nobel Prize winner and uh, public health kind of luminary and the first Australian of the year. And he just spoke to camera on that ad about the dangers of smoking. And so when the ads were, were rejected by the TV channels, Nigel went to the press and said, the channels are preventing the first Australian of the year from telling this public an important public health message. And of course, this created the exact the kind of firestorm that he was hoping they would create and force the government to air the ads <laughs> or to allow them to be aired. I remember Mac Burnett's uh, wife was dying of cancer, not of lung cancer, but he took cancer very, very seriously. Back in 1970, uh, the board invested 50000 That's about $600,000 today. It's a tiny amount of money. Yes. Well, I mean, it was big for for the, the Anti-Cancer Council at that time. So the, as I said before, the Cancer Council was quite a small operation at that time and $600,000 was, as David Hill, who's former CEO of the council, uh, would say, was a fair whack of money at that point in time. But uh, they used that money in, almost exclusively for buying ad time on television. The ads themselves were all made pro bono. So the, as you said before, the actors all... Uh, gave their time for free and even the creative the advertising creative john bevins who helped design those ads he uh worked pro bono as well so yeah it was it wasn't a huge amount of money certainly in comparison to what tobacco was putting into advertising but it was a lot for a small public health organization also at the time it was the custom to get free free ads from the networks. That's certainly what happened with, with my life. Be in it, we paid for a few spots. But over and above that, one hoped to get free to airs and uh, that was something else that Nigel was always uh, negotiating. You talk about John Bevins, who's recruited as a young creative from Ogilvy. He made uh, 26 ads, all with the same actors, but he <laughs> also did that famous sponge ad. Describe did, that. Yes. Describe that to the listener. So the sponge ad, uh, which some of the listeners may be familiar with, it's really become an iconic uh, anti-tobacco ad, uh, not just in Australia but around the world. Uh, shows a, a sponge wringing out the amount of tar that the average smoker inhales. You know, I think it's a period of a year, um, and over that is a voiceover explaining that that accumulation of toxic chemicals in the body. So it's the first kind of visceral, shocking ad that aired on Australian television. And indeed it was. I mean, later it would be echoed, and I think quite absurdly, by the uh, the bowling ball ad forum, 
for HIV AIDS. But yes, I was doing a lot of work for the Anti-Cancer Council then, most famously Slip Slap Slop with the with Sid the sibilant seagull. That was another <laughs> another campaign that came out of the Anti-Cancer Council of Victoria. It, it did, yeah. And also an iconic ad, ad um, campaign. That's it, The seagull is still around and still advertising the, the protection for, uh, from the sun. It is now the longest-running ad on Australian television. Now, the Gordon Coalition government had been lobbied to ban cigarette advertising, but uh, John allowed them to run with some changes, such as the time of day. I guess that's quite similar to gambling ads now. Well, I guess, I mean, that's a big question, the comparison between historical uh, events and today. But I, 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 gambling does present, gambling advertising certainly elicits the same level of public hostility that tobacco advertising did at the time. I think in recent polling, it's about 72% of Australians dislike gambling advertising, would like to see it banned in the same number. It's about, it's about 74, 75% of Australians in 1971 felt the same way about tobacco. Exit, uh, exit John Gordon, enter Gough Whitlam. He came in with a platform of banning tobacco ads, didn't he? He did, yes. He came into government with a, with a platform to ban tobacco ads and legislated that in 1973. And that was a phased banning over a, about um, five years. So it was supposed to be they slowly phased them out of uh, off TV and, and radio. I I recall, however, that print advertising was allowed to continue, as did sports sponsorship. What what about the Fraser government? So yes, when Fraser um, took power after the dismissal, he um, there was a degree of discussion within the party room about whether Whitlam's legislation should be allowed to continue or whether it should be repealed. And of course, there was a a dispute from different sides of the of the party about what, about about that question, but ultimately Fraser decided that he would allow the legislation to to stand, and it seems that the reason his reasoning for that was that it would be politically damaging to repeal something that was so popular. I remember the change of tack in the eighties, and uh, advertising became more shocking. Yep. Tr- trying to frighten people into quitting, of course. It included a very emotional one, a dying dad in hospital who'd missed his uh, his daughter's game. You should have been there, Dad, she says, beaming. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ray Lawrence, that great Australian director, directed that. Then tell me about the bubble wrap ad. It shows a, oh, look, I'll play a grab. It shows a cigarette burning holes in a plastic yes. bubble. Lungs are made up of millions of tiny air sacs. Chemicals in tobacco smoke destroy them. It's called emphysema, and it's irreversible. Even if you only smoke low-tar cigarettes, chances are you have emphysema in its early stages. Just about every smoker does. Call Quitline, 131-848. 
We should also remind people, in fact, many people don't remember this, but of course the cigarette industry denied any culpability. They refused to accept that there was a link even between smoking and lung cancer. It was a huge war that just went on and on and on. Now, Thomas, we're the envy of the world in terms of our impact on smoking from a range of measures, not just the ads, we have plain packaging, restraints on where you can smoke, and, of course, Nigel's tactic with price increases. We've done a bloody good job, haven't we? We have. We have done. From going from behind kind of the pack to really the front of it um, over that 50-year period. And um, a lot of that has to do with a, a kind of combination of of strategies, both regulatory, advertising, and also the in, the the informed way that behavioral science has been used to design campaigns and advocacy across the board. So uh, we've put all of those forces to bear to really bring down the smoking rate. But overarching, that is the simple fact that people have woken up to the fact that smoking is so damn dangerous. That, was, uh, that <laughs> wasn't the Anti-Cancer Council. That was a huge tectonic plate shift around the world. Yeah, uh, well, certainly, certainly we've, uh, people have seemed to have cottoned on to the idea that smoking is incredibly bad for you and likely to kill two-thirds of the people who do it. Um, so, but I think you've, we've got to take into account the suite of measures that were deployed in Australia to, to bring people to that resolution and also to give them the support they needed to quit. So things like quit line, motivated by advertising, motivated by GP support, etc., have all helped drive down the smoking rate. How to tackle vaping? Does it need to be tackled? Well, <laughs> that's a very big question and probably a difficult one for me to answer. I mean, look, uh, as a historian, my kind of tendency is to always look backwards and look at what we've done previously, and vaping is very much the new frontier. Um, I will say it's an increasing problem, and we do know that large numbers of young people are taking up the habit, and it is inhaling toxic chemicals, which is always going to be a problem or potentially a problem. For friends, so, friends of mine in the uh, in the business of trying to get drug laws reformed suggest that it also may, in fact, be a help with harm minimisation. So we'll leave that story for another program. Thomas Keogh, thank you very much for coming on. Thomas is historian at Cancer Council Victoria. The Anti-Tobacco Advertising Exhibition, part of the Moving Minds Exhibition at Melbourne's ACMI, opened just a few days ago but you'll have a very generous two years to get there because it closes in February 2025. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.